1: the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Friday, June 10th. We have so much to talk about. We're going to talk about the Angels firing Joe Madden and what's going on at the end of that losing streak. Uh, We're going to talk about how one of my favorite all-time players might actually be back and crushing again. That's Joey Votto. Uh, How the Jays have an embarrassment of catchers We might talk a little bit about intentional walks on one and two counts, because how could you possibly not? And then we'll obviously get into guys we should be talking about more. But first, Matt, I want to gloat a little bit about a personal victory last night, which maybe you heard a little bit about. Uh, Yesterday, a group of us from MLB.com went to a Brooklyn Cyclones minor league game. It's an A-Ball affiliate of the Mets. It's on Coney Island. I think we've talked about this park maybe 15 to 20 times on the show in the past. It's built into the boardwalk. It's on the beach. If you ever get a chance to go, please go. It's so much fun. And because we're there as part of a group, they let us participate in some shenanigans. So... In the middle of the fifth inning, uh, myself and Dan Chikalski, one of our editors, went and did the tire relay race as a team against uh, Scott Chisano and Arturo yeah And guess what? We won. Me and Dan <laughs> won. It was great. There's video of it. There's audio of it. Matt saw it in person. Uh, and Arturo is like a marathon runner. He's like in really good shape. Eh, i still beat him. I'm, I'm very pleased about that. <laughs> Matt,
0: thank you for being there to Bear witness. It was, uh, it was a glorious race. Congratulations, Mike. You know, These days, at our age, the athletic feats and accomplishments are few and far between. So to be able to get one, not just get one, but to get one in front of uh, many of your colleagues has to be extremely gratifying.
1: And I'm sure they won't be hearing about it for many years <laughs> to come. Let's talk about actual baseball. Uh, it's interesting to me. So there were two big managerial firings that came down in the last week. Uh, shockingly, neither of which came from any of the multiple American League Central teams where change probably is, is deserved. And my reaction to, let's say, the Phillies firing Joe Girardi and the Angels firing Tony uh, Joe Madden was like was very different. Would you agree with that? Like With Girardi, it felt like the Sharks were kind of swirling. This was coming. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the Angels just tweeted, uh, "We've relieved Joe Madd of, of his duties," and everybody's like, "What?" Like, was that was that your reaction there too?
0: For sure. I mean, we recorded last Thursday, and and we we kind of we did a, a segment on the Phillies, and we kind of speculated that they might fire him, and they did it the next day on Friday. So. It's obvious that, like, it was kind of expected. There was already some chatter about it. Todd Zielecki, our Phillies beat reporter, had written about it, that there was some speculation going on. So that one was not surprising at all. Madden, I mean, he got fired, what, after 12 straight losses? Like, they all, they lost two more. There was a 14-game losing streak that finally ended last night, and they they were, it was after 12 that he got fired. And at that point, like, in retrospect, maybe we shouldn't have been that surprised because it's easy to forget that Joe Madden was not hired by the current head of baseball operations for the Angels, uh, Perry Manazian. He was hired by Billy Eppner, their previous GM. And we've seen this time and again that like when people come in and they're hired as GM or head of baseball operations, whoever has the power to hire the manager, they want their own person. And obviously Joe Manor has a huge profile. He had a big contract. So Manazian wasn't really in a position to like just let him go when he got hired. And I kind of feel like after 12, after 12 game losing streak, um, he finally had that, you know, excuse to do so.
1: I'm kind of I find myself torn about this a little bit because my opinion of Joe Madden Madden as a manager has uh, declined over the last couple years, right? Like I I don't view him as the same like way out ahead of everybody forward thinking guy he was with the Rays and to some extent with the Cubs. And yet at the same time, I look at what the Angels roster has looked like over the last couple weeks. Like you look at the losing streak, right? And uh, Anthony Rendon was not around for. Just about all of it, or I think actually all of it, because he was hurt. And Taylor Ward, who got off to such a great start, was absent for some of it. And Mike Trout, of all people, went 26 straight point appearances like, without a hit. And then, you know, obviously, you never want a hand wave away like a two week losing streak. But to some extent, what was he going to do there? And Even looking at the rotation, like, you no, know, Syndergaard has not actually pitched that well. You know, the uh, the bullpen has been. Awful. And I don't want to say that that has nothing to do with the manager. Certainly some of it does. But this team was never as good as they looked like early on. And some of those those cracks are becoming like glaringly clear. And it's kind of funny to me. You, know, you look at what the Phillies have done with Rob Thompson. They look like they're the best team on the planet. They're not. And you look at what the, uh, the Angels have done. You know, what three straight losses, I guess it was, two or three straight losses under Phil Nevin before finally breaking the the streak last night. Mostly, I wonder what Brad Ausmus is thinking (laughs) right now, who got one year with a flawed roster and then got fired so that Joe Madden could come in and get a couple years with a flawed roster and then get fired.
0: And yeah, I agree with you. There's a few sides to this, right? Which is also the Angels have done, and this goes back a few years, and this is a huge part of the reason why Mike Trout has not appeared in the playoffs since 2014 is they've done a they've done a poor job internally of developing not just like impact players but also role players so like as you said they've had these injuries and the guys that they're starting that are now getting at bats because of injuries are like tyler wade andrew velasquez and juan Lagares who are like cast off some other teams they're like minor league free agent types that are available to any team for basically like below you know for minor league deals in the offseason and that's what they're working with they don't have a um a wave of even just like competent, you know, major leaguers at AAA or on their bench ready to step in and take these at bats. And like you can't really blame Joe Madden for that. Of course, like, you know, he had he did a Q&A with Ken Rosenthal, the athletic, right after he got fired, and he kind of like went in on like blaming analytics, which was like <laughs> I what was it, that? <laughs> here was here was the quote. He said, It's been kind of difficult. I think this was the money quote, I should say. It's been kind of difficult overall. I'm into analytics, but not to the point where everybody wants to shove it down your throat. Real baseball people have felt somewhat impacted by all of this. You're unable to go to the ballpark and have some fun and play baseball. It's too much control by front offices these days. Now, that may be the case in some senses, but this is the guy who got famous, who made his name as the manager of the Tampa Bay Rays, when basically they were like the cutting edge of teams basically saying like the front office is going to have like a huge say in everything that happens on the field and is going to be in lockstep with Manager. That's how Madden got famous. That's how he got successful. And then he went to the, the Cubs, who were run by Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer, who basically pra- practiced a similar, a similar like mantra. So like, it's a, it's just, it's uh, there's a, a disconnect, shall we say, there.
1: I want, I want to give him the slight benefit of the doubt there because I do believe there's some truth to you know you can have the smartest people in the world in the front office, but if the communication is poor, then it's not going to work. And like, I have no idea what's going on in the Angels' front office. Like, hey, possibly true, but I can guarantee you that nobody in the nerd group of the front office came down to the dugout and said, hey, you know what you should do? Uh, what do you think about walking Corey Seager with the bases loaded? Like We definitely think you should do that because like nobody thought that was a good idea. And I think it was kind of the way he worded it that got to me uh, where he said real baseball people, which is a little infuriating, I guess, as though like what, what makes for a real baseball person? I guess someone who's been in the dugout for 45 years. I, that was frustrating. Uh, to me a little bit there, there's some fun context to this though and um, I saw that our friend Alden Gonzalez had this from Elias this was the longest losing streak in history for a team that was at least 10 games above 500 when the streak began and only three teams have ever had a post made the postseason despite a double digit losing streak and these teams are very funny to me uh, the 1951 New York Giants the all-time famous you know shot heard around the world the 1982 Atlanta Braves which I have absolutely no recollection of in any way whatsoever and the weirdest losing streak i think i can ever remember the 104 win nationally champion 2017 los angeles dodgers who for like two weeks in september forgot how to play baseball (laughs) if you remember that and then of course they went to the world series (laughs) so i don't know i don't know if these uh angels are any of of these guys but like it's not going to matter unless they get some infielders, middle infielders, and pitchers, right? Like I feel like that's where this comes down to.
0: I've always enjoyed the like the um, the Bill James concept of signature significance, and this one blew me away. This fact blew me away. I guess it's not surprising, but it's still kind of pretty telling. And this is from uh, from Joe Sheehan. Um, in the modern history of baseball, back to the emergence of the American League in 1901, no team has lost 14 straight games and finished above 500 in the same season. I even made the playoffs. Finished above 500. So basically there's no precedent for – if, if the Eagles finish above the 500, they'll be the first team to ever pull that off. I never – I mean, I thought they – the great start was going to hopefully – that they got off to was going to be enough to get them to 85 to 90 wins and get them a playoff spot as like a fifth or sixth seed in the American League. That's – I mean – that's off, right? Like, Will Leach did a piece uh, from MLB.com earlier this week of basically, like, here are the five teams that have benefited most from the Angels' collapse. Teams that, like, a month ago, we were like, oh, Red Sox, maybe they're going to be selling guys off. Like, they're in trouble. Then they, they go on a winning streak. They're now ahead of the Angels after taking a series from them. Like, there's a bunch of other teams that now, like, we, we were, I wouldn't say we're writing off, but like, oh, that's going to be tough. Like, the Angels can just kind of, like, basically play 500 ball the rest of the way. They are going to essentially have a playoff spot locked up. And... I think their bullpen should be better. They have some decent guys back there. I mean, the lineup is the big. If healthy, it's a it's a decent lineup. We discussed them earlier in the year. I think their starting pitching is at least better than it has been. And that's I, I realize that's a low bar to clear, um, but at least has like what should be five competent guys. But. At this point, it may not be enough because they've, now they've like lost the the get, the get ground that they gained early in the season.
1: It's worth noting that when the Phillies fired Joe Girardi and Rob Thompson got off to such a great start, the first team he got to play happened to be the Angels, who were in the middle of a terrible losing streak. So uh, the Angels, I guess by extension, at least helped the Phillies look good. We will take a quick break and we will be back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. what would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America, NA member FDIC. We're back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike patriello and Matt Myers. We are in our three batter minimum where we pick three very interesting topics. From the week and the first one to me it makes me happy it brings me joy because I think the most disappointing outcome to me of the first month of the season was that Joey Votto looked like he was absolutely toast uh, he went on the injured list the COVID-19 list on May 1st and the season to that point for Joey Votto could hardly have gone worse 122 278 a 135 slugging percentage for Joey Votto and you know he's 38 years old and you sort of wonder oh it's at the end of the line like that stinks. Well he came back on May 20th and since then and if you haven't noticed this it's understandable because the Reds are playing better but they're still not that great he's hitting 308 416 708 an OPS of one, one I never know how to say the four digit OPS is 1123 1123 I don't know it's quite good since that day there have been 228 players to bat at least 50 times his line is eighth best and it could have actually been better, because on Wednesday he hit a home run against the Diamondbacks that rookie outfielder Alec Thomas robbed. So oh for one, that stinks. It's cool to me. I mean this is a guy who has had so many ups and downs and reinventions in his career, especially over the last couple of years as he's aged. And I mean I'm certainly I've got a pro Votto bias, so I would like to believe the red hot awesome Vado more than the terrible early season Vado. I mean what's changed, right? Like we know in spring training he went with the hockey puck style bat knob, like which he thought was going to be a big deal, and it didn't work. And now he's back with his ash bat. He talked, to, uh, and David Bell, the manager, also talked to Mark Sheldon, who's our Reds beat reporter. There's a lot of vague speak about, "Well, I fixed my swing, and I was not open to feedback, and now I am open to feedback." Uh, and I don't know. But if you look at the numbers, it was never about bad luck; uh, it was bad performance. So before he got on the uh, COVID-19 list, 32% strikeout rate after 18. Before, it was a 26% hard hit rate. Now it's a 57% hard rate. And my question to you, Matt, the Reds are playing better, but they're still not any good, and they don't look like they're going to be anytime soon. Can we officially revive the free Joey Votto, uh, let's say, bandwagon, trade him somewhere to be in the postseason? Um,
0: yes, I think so. He will be tough to trade um, because you know there's a variety of reasons. His contract is still... Fairly sizable, although, you know, it was, si- it was signed so long ago that now the numbers don't look so crazy, right? It was like, it wasn't like a 10 year deal, like 10 years ago. Okay. And so it's, you know, it's 25 million. It's, you know, the remainder of 25 million for this year, 25 million for 2023 and a $70 million mutual uh, buyout of his 2024 team option. So, I'm almost certain he also has a full no trade clause. He probably has, oh he's ten and five. Of course he does. Yeah. So he'd be able to dictate where he wants to go. He's shown. He's kind of said in the past he likes being in Cincinnati. And like I mean, if he had a chance to go to a team like that really had a chance to win a World Series, it's hard to know what he would say. Um, but I think the conversation is going to be had because he's interesting. You know, he he looks like he's back in. You know, he's going to be a good source of OBP. There are some contenders that really could use a player like him who you've outlined, and we should go through. But, I mean, uh, it's just the money and sort of like the, the, the ties to Cincy makes it kind of hard to see for me.
1: There is one extremely obvious option, I think, that everybody already can predict, but I'm going to say that for last. I, I looked at two potential playoff teams that have some really weak spots at first base. Uh, the first one is the Red Sox, where Bobby Dahlbeck has been really off to a very tough start. Uh, this is not just his numbers, but Red Sox first basemen are hitting 180 with a 522 OPS. They've even had to put my boy, Franchi Cordero, first base. And I love Franchi Cordero, but even I probably don't want to play first base every day. And then I was really surprised to come across the, uh, Houston, where Yuli Gurriel, who was coming off such a good year last year, he's looked awful. The 206 on uh, batting average, a 594 OPS. And you're right, again, he would have to, Votto would have to approve being sent to any of those places, which he may or may not want to do. There's two other teams that I, I think are interesting Potential playoff hopefuls, and I'm stretching the term a little bit now. In the first one, with very weak left-handed batting, the White Sox, and uh, yeah, we're gonna get to the White Sox. Their left-handed batters have a 181, 234, 256 line. That's a 490 OPS, and this is true. That is the weakest on record by any team's left-handed hitters ever and ever. In this case, goes back to 1974. Well, you know, would he want to go to a team that's just not? Playing that well and play for Tony Larissa, I don't know. The obvious one, we all know what this was going to be. Send him home. Send him to Toronto. Not only is it a storybook ending, not only is the team good at going to the playoffs, there is actually a need here. And you might say, well, they've got Vlad Jr. at first base. Yes, they do. Their lefties are not very good. 615 OPS are the the third worst. Like, he could easily take uh, the roster spot of Gavin Vigio. And what you can basically say is, listen, uh, you're not coming to replace Vlad as the first baseman. But... Vlad's not so great of a defensive first baseman that you can't have him DH a couple days a week, right? So you let Votto DH three times a week, play first base twice a week, give him a breather against a tough lefty. I, I, this could work, and it also seems like the place he might actually waive his no-trade clause to go to.
0: Yeah, because of the other teams you mentioned, and I'm I'm this is admittedly wild speculation because I'm not inside Joey Votto's head, in case you were wondering. Um, I can't see him, for a team that's like, not a clear cut World Series favorite. Like, is he really gonna be like? I'm going to go to Boston and be like the six seed. You know, like it's just hard. It's hard to envision that when he has this like tie to Cincy that's like really meaningful. And while the, the Blue Jays are almost certainly not going to win their division, it's the I mean, it's the Blue Jays. He's Canadian. There'd be that great. You know, that it would be such a great story. You you could at least see that. It's it's not hard to to see how that that could could work. The playing time would need to be worked out a little bit because also they've got. um you know, we'll get to the, more. we're going to go deeper in a second. You've got a lot, of, a lot of guys coming, but you could, you could see it happening. By the way, before we move to the next topic, I do think we should give the Reds a little bit of credit because yeah. this, the Reds looked like, it was like, oh my goodness, this is going to be a historically bad season. And it was not just like, oh, this is a bad roster. It was just like bad vibes, you know, just like, like you know, some of the comments that were coming from like team executives and it was just like the fans were, were irate and it was just, it wasn't good and to be clear they're still 20 and 37 which is not very good but it was like i mean they were on like a 1962 mets pace for a while and they've actually kind of like been somewhat competent over the last few weeks and are no longer have the worst record in baseball in fact there are now two teams with worse records than they do
1: kansas city and baltimore no detroit oakland. kansas city oakland. oh oakland okay yeah uh, briefly on the Reds, before we get off them. them, um, they had bad news yesterday. Tyler Stevenson broke his, I can't remember now, one of his fingers on a foul tip. And he was having a pretty good season. He's going to be out for about six weeks. And it made me think, All-star voting is now open. He was probably going to be their guy as a backup catcher for the National League, and now he's probably not because he's hurt. And you look up and down the roster, and the options here are slim, like I guess Brandon Drury, but it's pretty hard to squeeze him in. And so here's what I'm thinking. I think this could be a pretty fun story if this happens, All right? Votto's the biggest name, but he got off to such a bad start, it's probably not going to be him, and first base in the NL is loaded anyway. I think their all-star representative just might be Alexis Diaz, who is Edwin's little brother which I think is super cool. I hope that happens. I think that would be really fun. Mike, you have a very good
0: knack for sort of identifying like dominoes of like all-star rosters. I remember a couple of years ago you did a piece on like Chris Davis when like the Orioles were absolutely terrible. And it was like when Chris Davis was coming off his like ridiculously terrible slump and everyone had written him off as a major league baseball player. And you wrote like, well, actually, Chris Davis could be their all-star because he like had like a 780 OPS after like the first two months of the season. That was your idea, by the way. (laughs) But you you would you would point it out. To, I think you would point it out to me, and then I was like, "Oh, you should write a piece on this." So it, it cuts both ways.
1: Fair enough. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about the Blue Jays, and let's specifically talk about their catchers. If it seems to you like offense from catchers is uh, very hard to find this year, you're not wrong. Major league catchers, as a group, are hitting a forty six thirty nine OPS. Um, that's really really weak. If you go back to the start of the modern baseball era in 1920, fourth weakest, and they you know. 1968, 1967, 1942, and then this year. Nobody can hit. The only catchers who are really hitting this year are both Contreras brothers somehow and Alejandro Kirk for the Blue Jays who, I think this is my favorite stat of the year so far, has 21 walks and 16 strikeouts. Like the only other guys I believe who are there's like five or six other guys who are doing that and other than Carlos Santana, they're all like Ily, you know, Jose Ramirez, Juan Soto uh kirk i think should start the all-star game he won't because he's not famous enough and royals fans show up and they're going to vote for sal perez even though he's not having a very good season uh but kirk has really you know blossomed into this all-around very good catcher even behind the plate you know when he first came up he was a poor framer last year he was an average framer this year he's a good framer hitting 322 slugging 477 like he's really very good It's not just about Kirk though, right? Danny Jansen, who's been there forever, just got hurt. He was slugging 625. He was doing his best off-brand Jose Bautista. I'm just going to pull the ball and hit the crap out of it. And like, it worked, but then he got hurt. And so for most teams, oh no, I lost one of my catchers. I'm going to have to call up some quad A guy or, you know, dig up Sandy Leone, or, you know, a lifer who's never really been up. What did the Blue Jays do? They call up the number four overall prospect in baseball, <laughs> Gabriel Moreno. Um, and our friend Sarah Langs looked into this. Now, now you know, Moreno and, and Kirk are both very young. Um, no team has had at least 30 games played from two catchers who were 24 years old and younger since the 1979 Yankees of Jerry Naren and Brad Golden. I know Jerry Naren. I don't know Brad Golden unless he went on. I don't know. Is he from the Mustard family? I, I'm sorry. I don't know who that is. Um, Jansen's going to come back at some point, too. This is an embarrassment of riches in a sport where nobody can find catchers who can hit.
0: And this is actually go, kind of going back to our previous conversation about Vado, is like where it's, yes, he's a left-handed bat, so that's maybe where he differentiates himself, but like where are all these guys going to play? And I think you know, I like, I mean, the depth of catcher, hey, that's a good thing because, like, you keep their legs fresh. And as long as they're good enough to you feel good about putting them at DH or first base occasionally, you can still put their bats in the lineup and feel like, hey, we're still getting an above-average hitter at a spot where you need offense from. So that makes this group unique. I did a double-take at first when they called up Moreno because I was like, they got Kirk playing so well. But I guess you could see the logic of, you know, so often nowadays we see these top prospects come up and there's so much hype around them of just like hey you're the guy you're gonna have to play the spotlight's on you and he's gonna get to kind of like ease himself into the majors in a way that a lot of prospects don't because they'll be splitting time with Kirk you know and that's you know I I I see the I, I see the logic and then like if Kirk slumps and you want to like lean more on Moreno you can and there won't be quite the same kind of expectations there would be if you called him up more like ta-da here's the guy
1: Yeah, that's exactly kind of the point I wanted to get to. And I I don't want to overhype this point too much. But when you get called up as a top prospect onto a successful team, you can slip under the radar like a little bit because there's so many other good things going on as compared to, let's say, like Adley Rutschman, who got called up and was basically anointed like baseball Jesus. And he has struggled like really badly. He is. He's hitting 143 for Baltimore. I'm not saying that's why, uh, but I I think that could potentially be uh, an easier landing spot. I'm not going to let any of this stand in the way of the idea that Joey Votto has a spot on the Blue Jays if he wants it, though. Absolutely. Rhymel Tapia doesn't need to hit anymore. Kevin Vigiu doesn't really need to hit anymore. Bring Votto home. I think that's what everybody wants. Our third topic, unavoidable. Uh, as I mentioned, Matt and I and a bunch of our colleagues were at Coney Island yesterday, not really watching baseball because, you know, not watching Major League Baseball because we were at a minor league park. And yet it was unavoidable to notice that at some point during the day, the White Sox had issued a intentional walk on a 1-2 and two count. If you haven't heard about this, I have to set it up for you briefly. They're playing the Dodgers. It's the top of the sixth. The White Sox had blown a 4-0 lead. They're now down 6-5. to five. The first four Dodgers come up single, fly out, ground out, RBI single. So now it's 7-5 Dodgers. There's two outs. Freddie Freeman's on first. Bennett Souza, a left-handed pitcher, is on the mound. Trey Turner comes up. It's very good. Called strike foul ball and a ball and now the key part here is that Freddie Freeman took second base here he's no longer in first base into the at-bat he takes second base well Tony La issued the intentional walk sign Max Muncy comes up gets down to one and two crushes a home run and the White Sox lose by two you can imagine what the reaction was to all of that I was honestly stunned well multiple reasons, but I was stunned to find that it hadn't been that long since the last one and two intentional walk. Uh, It actually happened twice last year, and it failed both times. Last year, the Rockies did it to Corey Seager, and then Chris Taylor hit him in, and the Twins did it to Mike Trout. Uh, Justin Upton delivered an extra base hit. I was wondering why we hadn't gotten so angsty about those. I think it's partially because of Tony Lewis's recent reputation and also the way he responded to it. But I also think it's East coast bias because those games were night games on the East coast. So like baseball, Twitter wasn't all riled up about it. Um, But then there was this and it's like, I guess, can we at least agree that even though this was like a bad idea, I, I I understand his premise, right? Like is Trey Turner better than Max Muncie? Yes. Is Max Muncie having a terrible year? Yes. Is there any scenario where this is a good idea? No. Oh, let's agree on this. If Freeman starts the plate appearance on second and not on first, they issue the intentional walk and nobody has any problem with that. Do you agree?
0: Yes. I think, mean, and that's, so that's the thing. So when I first heard about this, that was like getting, it was like, it was like game of telephone. I was like getting bits and pieces from you and from, from, from like, you know, push alerts on my phone. I heard one, two, intentional walk on, Um, you know, one, to intentional walk. Like what's that about? But then you get, you, you get, you get these other pieces, right? Which is the at started with Freeman on first and then on The second ball, he – sorry, on on ball one, he takes second base on a wild pitch. So it's one, two, and then first base becomes open, right? And so then it's like, okay, I always like to try and give people the benefit of the doubt and think back. Because to your point, I was like, well, if he started on second base, it's it's not a no-brainer because, like, some people are just, like, anti-intentional walk in general. But it's like, okay, like, that's totally within the realm of, like, baseball conventional thinking. So, like – it's it's not it's not crazy like maybe you hate potential Walk maybe you hate Relusa you're going to criticize it anyway but given those circumstances like you have to think a little bit more about it. you know there's all the other things right where it's like okay Bennett Souza who's pitching he's got oh this year he's actually got a weird reverse split although yesterday might have like dist- might might be the reason he has a 951 OPS against lefties 703 versus righties he's been terrible in general to be clear he's also not a very good pitcher and that's one of the things I take away from it where I'm like you don't really trust like at the very least you should just tell this guy just throw one in the dirt like throw, you know, see, get him to chase right like he doesn't even trust the guy to like if you don't trust this guy to like not throw a meatball on a one and two pitch like if you're because if you're okay walking him you just just like throw three three balls in the dirt cv chases and if not like okay well we were okay walking
1: him anyway right and 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 you know what else like if you throw it in the dirt the risk there is you get another pass ball right but You get Freeman from second to third. There's two outs. It's not a sacrifice fly situation anyway. He's not a terribly fast runner. That base, when you're already down two, I don't think costs you that much. And maybe you get Turner to go after it and, you know, ground out or whatever. Because otherwise, I feel like he was talking about numbers, but the wrong numbers, like the numbers that don't make any sense. You know, like I I heard him say, you know, do you know what Turner hits uh, against left-handed pitching, you know, with one strike or 0-1 or two strikes? And then do you know what Muncy hits with two strikes? And I'm like, hold up a second. You don't get Muncy with two strikes. You have (laughs) Muncy at 0-0. Like that's not not how this works. I know he eventually got to two strikes and that's fine. I, I think it was, a lot of it was just about the way he was so, I don't know, either shocked or dismissive that people would question this bizarre decision <laughs> that then didn't work out. And we should be clear, it's not just because it didn't work out. Like, obviously it didn't. But I think even if it did, people would have been like, "What? what's happening right now? Like, what are we doing here?
0: Yeah, I think 100%. Like, the fact that he was so, like, arrogant about it is, like, what what turns me off. Because, like, if he had come into the press conference and been like, yeah, you know, I know it's a little unconventional, but, like, it's a lefty up. Muncie's been terrible this year, like... He's really been terrible. He's coming off the IL, but like he's been terrible. I just didn't want to take the chance of like my my lefty throwing a meatball to Turner on the one-two pitch. Yeah, it was a little bit of a gut feel, probably cuts against the grain a little bit. Like it was a tough call. I kind of thought like maybe I'd get away with it and I just didn't. And, you know, that's that's baseball. Like there's a way to sort of sell it and that you're like, okay, like I don't agree with it, but at least you're like acknowledging that it was a little unconventional and maybe the fact that he was like, no, this is a no brainer.
1: It's ridiculous. <laughs> He's right. It was a no brainer. The best reaction was from Trey Turner, who was like, "I didn't, I didn't know what to do. Like, was I supposed to go to first base here? Like, what's happening right now? Uh, it's been this last week has been a whole season for the White Sox, and I, I will, I will give him one benefit of the doubt. It's not his fault. Half the team is hurt, and nobody can play defense. And Lance Lynn is hurt, and Tim Anderson is hurt. I still wouldn't hit Leary Garcia leadoff. off. That's not what I would do, but I'd also prefer to have Tim Anderson, and they don't have him right now.
0: Do you think Tony LaRusso will survive the
1: season? Should he? No. Do you think there's a manager in baseball who has a closer relationship with the owner? I I would say no.
0: It's hard to know, but you, you may be right. But yeah, um, it's this will be an interesting one to watch Um, because at least for, it's it seemed like they were per, per, perking up a bit. So you could be like, OK, well, they may not win the division, but like there's six playoff teams they could still get there. Now they're three games under 500, but they're now behind the Guardians. They have a minus 57 run differential. The White Sox minus 57. The Guardians are plus 34. So like, actually, like the gap between them is probably bigger than we even realize, at least in terms of what we've seen thus far on the field. And it's they're they're still behind the Angels too, by the way, <laughs> by percentage points. But they're still behind them. The White Sox are very much behind the eight ball for a playoff spot right now.
1: Yeah, they, uh, they also have a very weird schedule coming up. Like, Texas and Detroit are like, okay, those are winnable games. And then in Houston and versus Toronto, which is kind of a tough stretch. Uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back with the guys you should know a little bit more about on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We are back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petrello and Matt Myers each week. We just love to get into guys that you should know a little bit more about. I'm pretty excited about my guy, Michael Harris II, who's an outfielder for the Braves. So far, he hasn't hit much. He's only been up for 12 games, 698 OPS. That is extremely not why I'm talking about him. He already looks like the king of dudes in the outfield. Uh, If you look at the stack-ass metrics, he is already plus three and outs above average. Three outs above average in 12 games is really something else. That's a counting stat. You cannot accumulate outs above average unless you play. So I looked at it on a rate basis, just like how much value are you adding per batted ball? Second best outfielder in baseball. An average outfielder based on his opportunities would have caught, estimated to have caught 86%. He's actually caught 96% that gap of plus 10 is the second best in baseball. He's already made three catches with a 50% catch probability or under and thrown a ball 97.5 miles an hour, and he's already the fastest brave. As Matt and I were discussing this on the subway home from Coney Island last night, he brought up the ball that I was specifically thinking of. Uh, I forget who hit it, but it was in the right center field gap, and it was one of those plays where, like, I know this is tough. Like, I know that this looks like a very hard play, but he didn't dive for it and I think that makes it even more impressive that he got there and didn't have to leave his feet. And it's true. Uh, The metrics line up. The eye test lines up. I hope he hits just because he's so much fun to watch field. It's also interesting to know a little bit about him. Would you be surprised to know that the Braves drafted a guy from Georgia? (laughs) He's from DeKalb. He went to Stockbridge High School, which is just barely southeast of Atlanta. Grew up a Braves fan. Loved Chipper Jones, loved Andrew Jones, all of that. Uh, Was drafted in the third round in 2019, and it's kind of cool to think about the way the Braves have shifted their outfield pieces. Remember last year, they tried to give Christian Pache the center field job, reasoning that he was a great defensive outfielder and they weren't sure he was going to hit, and they didn't hit. In the offseason, he was part of the trade to Oakland that brought back Matt Olson. And a lot of people were like, wow, they like had anointed Pache as the next guy. I can't believe they're giving up on him so quickly. To me, that meant one of two things. Either they were sure he was never going to hit, which hasn't really changed in Oakland, or... I knew they had Michael Harris the second, with kind of a similar profile right behind him and I think a better chance to hit. I think he's got more raw power. I don't know if that's gonna come, but in just two weeks he has looked like a really elite defensive center fielder. He's a lot of fun to watch. And I'm glad he's around because I want to see him make sick catches all the time.
0: Yeah, and the the Braves, they're they're coming. Yeah. They've got they've won eight straight games. They've been playing very well. They've got, you know, what is back, it's sort of fully fully operational, though. So, um They've, I guess the Mets were up like 10 games on them as of last week. It's down to, to six in the loss column. I still think that might very that will very well end up being a race because the Braves are a very good and a very deep team. My guy for this week is someone that may be a little too obvious at this point in the season, given that he was just AL Pitcher of the Month for May. But I promise you, you'll have to take me on my word, I was going to pick him like two weeks ago as my guy before he won AL Pitcher of the Month for May. And then like I got sidetracked and I picked someone else because some other random dude did something cool. Um, and... I didn't pick him, so I'm going to give him to you now anyway. One, why, of course, I'm talking about Martin Perez of the Texas Rangers, who now has a 1.56 ERA in 69 and a third innings pitch this year with one home run allowed. One in 69 innings. Ground ball rate of 54%, which is fourth among qualified starters. Um, he's a sinker, sinker changeup guy mostly, so. That's kind of his thing is getting, keeping the ball on the ground and obviously at, in, in the park as evidenced by the one home run allowed. He was at 38% two years ago with Boston. So you can see how the, the, the sixteen percentage point jump in ground ball rate has taken him from a pitcher who has had an ERA almost a 5 to an ERA of 1.56. Um, in May, he had a 0.64 ERA. He went 4-0 and they, the, the Rangers won all six of his starts. Per Stats, Inc., he is just the third MLB pitcher, and I love this, since 1913 when earned runs were officially tracked to post an eight-start span in which he went undefeated, did not allow a home run, had six home runnings pitched in each game, and allowed one or fewer earned runs in each game. The other two pitchers are Bob Gibson and Walter Johnson. <laughs> I realize we're doing some gymnastics with the qualifiers there, but when you can, like, end up on a list with uh, Bob Gibson and Walter Johnson, that's pretty cool. And, like, you look at Perez's baseball savant page and you watch him pitch... And it's, like, very easy to – it's, like, very easy to see. You see the heat maps on his sinker, and you see the heat map on his changeup. And it's basically, like, the sinker is this, like, bright red blob on the outside corner right-handed hitters, like, right above the knees. And the changeup is, like, a bright red blob about three inches below it right on the corner of the strike zone. And, you know, his his manager – Chris Woodward said the other, day, the other day said, it's like a video game. It's like you're playing MLB The Show or something like that. And you just click the button and it lands in the perfect place. Basically, that's the way he's pitching right now. And part of what makes Perez so interesting is that like, like five teams ago, he was originally signed by the Rangers as a teenager uh, out of Venezuela in 2007. And he was like a big prospect. He like blew up in 2009. At the age of 18, he went to A and he was ranked as the number 10 prospect in all of baseball by MLB Pipeline. And then he actually like he was like kind of like oh he's gonna be the next big dude and the Rangers had all these prospects and they were good at the major league level and they went to the World Series in 2010 yeah they, that was year they lost to the Giants to the World Series 2010 and it was like oh this is like a, they're this they're a machine now they got a good big league team they had all these prospects many of the prospects did not pan out at least not then Martin Perez being one of them and like his stock actually dropped like he was the next year he was 23 he was he was ranked number 23 then 29 then 95 before the 2013 season so by the time he actually got to the majors as a regular. He was just considered like kind of a guy and he's bounced around. He pitched for the Red Sox and the Twins. Um, And then now this season, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like Rick Porcello a few years ago when like Rick Porcello had been this like hype prospect and then was just like kind of a guy for a while and then won the Cy Young Award. Now, like at the time, it even seemed like kind of a fluke, right? Like he won the Cy Young Award and you look back at the voting and it was kind of like Close between him and Verlander, and Verlander had won it before. And I think voters were just like, oh, Porcello was a good story, and it was close, and and he got it. But he had like a 3.15 ERA and a 3.80 expected ERA. This was in 2016, so like you you knew you kind of knew it was a little a little bit fraudulent. Perez, and I don't expect him to allow you know one home run every 70 innings all season, <laughs> but he's at 1.56 ERA and 2.57 expected ERA. So at least it's like. He's been still been extremely good, no matter how how you slice it. And he's on a one year deal. When we think of interesting guys at the trade deadline, considering the Rangers are not, you know, especially good,
1: he could be really interesting. Over his career, before rejoining the Rangers this year, he had a four seventy-one ERA. Over the last four seasons, with Texas, Minnesota, and Boston, he had a 515 ERA. He was so poor with Boston, they non-tendered him instead of paying him six million dollars. And remember how much did we talked about the Red Sox needing pitching all winter. They chose not to have him on the team. And honestly, I couldn't even disagree. And now he's doing this. And I agree with you, it's super impressive. And yet I'm having a really hard time like finding the reason why. Like you talked about location, and that's super part of it. And I think, you know, he's using his sinker more, and that's also super part of it. I, I don't know how far how long you can go allowing one home run in 11 starts? Like, where where is the line between he will be worse than this going forward, yet I think he might still be, like, interestingly good? You know what I mean? Like, it's and that's, weird.
0: That's what's tough, because, like, by the time the trade deadline comes around, the regression will almost certainly have kicked in. And so it's like, oh, OK, like, you know, maybe you get, like, what not? And I, to be clear, for a, a half year of Martin, Martin Perez, you wouldn't get, like, you know, a top 20 prospect or something. Um, But you could make it something interesting. But I feel like by the time the trade deadline comes around, he'll you know he'll probably have given up you know like four home runs or five home runs, and you know maybe it's more of like a you know a B B minus prospect as opposed to like a B plus prospect.
1: Uh, He just turned 31 like two months ago. He might still have 10 more years in the majors left. He'll he'll leave and and return to Texas five times. Late bloomer. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.